This is Emma Clark. I'm here for the Brooklyn Public Library's Our Streets, Our Stories project. I'm joined by Brenda Bent-Peters, and today we are talking to Sheila Gallagher. We're at the Diker branch of the library, and I kind of want to start a little bit further back than I normally do because you've just showed us so many wonderful photos. So tell us a little bit about your parents and where they came from. Okay, my dad was born in uh, Cluna Mergle, County Leitrim, a uh, little town or village called Drumkiernan. And my mom was born in Sligo. She was born in uh, Cluna Cool in Sligo. And uh, both uh, Leitrim and Sligo are border counties. They border each other, but it wasn't until many years later they met at a dance, an Irish dance, I guess, in the Bronx. And that's how they ended up uh, dating and getting together and eventually marrying and eventually having me and my sister. And how did they each decide to come over here? Um, I believe in my father's case, I think one of his brothers was already here and his sister was here and they sent for him because in Ireland at that time, the economy wasn't so stable or, you know, and he wasn't able to uh, get a job that he wanted. And he felt America would be a better choice for him, that he would have more uh, opportunities. And so he came out here and he worked in a, a number of odd jobs before he ended up finally staying with the MTA, the Transit Authority. Mm -hmm. And he drove the bus here on uh, 7th Avenue, 8th Avenue line. And he worked at a Jackie Gleason depot on 36th Street, which is the, one of the depots for Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And my mom, I believe her sister, Amelda, the older one, sent for her. And she came out and she ended up working many years, uh, 17 years in Shraps as a waitress and as a assistant manager. And that was an interesting job too because one of the stories she told me was about meeting Mamie Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. She worked in Shraps at the Chrysler building and she also worked in the Shraps in the White Plains area. So one day Mamie Eisenhower came in and requested tea. So my poor mother went and got her a cup of tea and brought it to her table and put it in front of her and said, here's your tea. And Mamie Eisenhower took one look at it and walked and said, that is not my tea. Please go back and get me my tea. So my mom brings the tea back and one of the waiters called her over and he said, I'll take care of her. So they went to the bartender and they had a drink made up. It was a martini straight up and they put it in the teacup and brought it back to the table and she said oh now you've brought me my tea <laughs> and that was how she learned that Mamie Eisenhower uh, had an interesting sideline uh, in addition to being the general's wife she was also later on became first lady when she was um, you know when uh, a Dwight David Eisenhower became president but that's my mother's introduction to Mamie Eisenhower and her cup of tea <laughs> And uh, you mentioned a little bit about the dance. What was the story with that? Well, the dance, I guess, was in the Bronx. And at that time, my dad had gone with a lady named Peggy. Who Peggy is is lost to the annals of history. But apparently, Peggy followed my mother into the ladies' room and asked her for her phone number. And my mother balked, saying, why would I give you my phone number? And she said, it's for the guy outside, Peter. He wants to date you. And my mother said, well, you're dating him. Why would I want to date him? But anyway, I guess she threw caution to the wind, gave her the phone number, and eventually they ended up dating. And she realized my dad was a really nice guy. And they ended up getting married. And uh, thankfully they did because I wouldn't be here otherwise. <laughs> you know? Did they move to Brooklyn when they first got here? No, they lived at 1360 Ogden Avenue in the Bronx. And... Um, they had an apartment there and they lived there for a while 
And eventually they felt that they needed more space and they wanted to be closer to family, especially my dad's side of the family. I think my father had a long commute to go to work with the transit because he was working out of Brooklyn. He had to travel from the Bronx down to go to Brooklyn every day. So they uh, contacted my Aunt May, who was a beautician at ANS's Glenby Salons, and she put them in an apartment on 4th Avenue and 77th Street, but it was right over the boiler. So in the winter, they loved the apartment because they had wonderful heat. But in the summer, it was like baking in an oven. It was just too hot. Mm -hmm. So eventually they ended up moving. They found a place on Fort Hamilton Parkway and they moved in uh, compliments of the Silverstones who were a very nice couple who would rent to my parents. Because, you know, a lot of times people didn't want to rent to Irish Catholics. I hate to say it, but they were not looked upon, you know, as good renters, you know. But uh, they got along wonderfully well with the Silverstones. They were a wonderful couple, and they treated my parents lovely. And we lived in their, you know, their uh, house or apartment, I should say. It was over a store. And that's a very sad story, too, because the people downstairs that had the store at the time, they were the Rosens. And Harry Rosen, one night, was leaving work. It was 1962. He got on the Belt Parkway and was driving his car home. And the car stalled out in the rain, and he had run out of gas on the Belt Parkway, which is a big no-no. He got out of the car, and he went and got $2 worth of gasoline, came back with the gas tank or the, the gas, uh, what do you call it? Um, yeah, yeah uh, the little plastic refill gas thing. Mm -hmm. And as he was pouring the gas into the car, he was struck by another car, and he was subsequent, subsequently killed. So um, out of that tragedy, his wife was sitting Shiva, which... At that time, I never knew as a little kid what Shiva was. She sat on a box, and um, she tore her clothing, and she was mourning the loss of her husband. My mom came down to pay her respects, and out of that, my mother eventually worked with her, and she bought the lease out, and she opened up Gallagher's Candy Store at 7111 Fort Hamilton Parkway. And they owned the store for about eight years, but they worked really hard. They were up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they worked till 10 o'clock at night. So it was long hours, but it was very profitable. And uh, together, my father and mother worked hand in hand. They really did, they really did a lot. And uh, it was interesting. We had wonderful memories of the candy store. Like? Well, coming home from school, I was never hungry, that's for sure. <laughs> I would start off with the devil dog and eat that. And, and I'd have a ring ding. And then I'd wash it down with the Yoo-Hoo. And after that, it was a Milky Way bar and a Musketeer bar and wash it down with a Coca-Cola. So by the time dinner rolled around, you could say I was fully tanked. You know? But they were happy memories. They were good memories. And um, we got to read the comic books and we got to look at the bride magazine. So there was lots of things to do. And of course, we helped my mom in the store. We washed all the glasses. We washed down the counters. We filled up the candy for her and also took a little for ourselves. And there was lots of things to do. There was always something. And I could wait on customers, and that's how I learned my subtraction and my addition, how to add in my head and how to subtract, because we had a very old cash register. And it wasn't like today where you put the numbers in and it does everything for you and it prints the receipts and it tells you how much change. I was able to make change in my head, and that helped me in school with my math, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of your earliest memories of the neighborhood? The earliest memories of the neighborhood, I guess, were wonderful ones. Um, I remember going out on my bicycle. I had a red bicycle given to me as a Christmas gift, and we could ride around the neighborhood. And there was no such thing as cell phones. You had Johnny's mother yell out the window, Johnny, come home. No cell phone. Then the next neighbor would yell, Johnny, your mother wants.
wants you? And the next neighbor would yell. So it was like a telephone system, but it was all mothers that were home or fathers that were home. Johnny, get home before your father beats you, boy. You know, and then the kid would say, oops. And then the kid would cycle home or rollerblade, not rollerblade, he would roller skate home. I'm sorry, rollerblades came much later. And uh, everybody would play stoop ball at night. They would play um, Red Rover, Red Rover, come over. They would play all different types of silly games, but they were fun games and they were active and everybody was out. You would sit on your stoop in the evening after you had finished your chores for the day and parents would watch their children play. You could play in the street, it was safe. You could ride to the park and go around the park on your bicycle and you didn't have to worry about you know being harmed or anything because basically everybody knew each other. It was a sense of good community, good neighborhood and a happy time, it's a happy time. I mean, I, I know today people have their cell phones, but they don't seem to interact with each other anymore. They're always busy texting and looking down. And at least when we played, we played with each other. We would argue with each other. We would fight with each other, but we were still friends the next day. You know, um, if you had a problem with someone, you would go to the park, you would settle it, and you would shake hands at the end. Today, it's a whole different ball game. People, you know, are a little bit more prone to violence. You know, they don't settle their arguments with the handshake. They settle it with a gun. So there's a whole big different world out there. Very different from when I grew up. It was much nicer. And you have memories. Um, the classmates that I had back in that day when I graduated from St. Ephraim's, today we're all on Facebook. So at night you can tune in with your classmates from 40, well, I don't even say, <laughs> 40 some odd years ago. And uh, we did have a reunion after 20 years. And out of a class of 160, we had about 120 kids show up for the reunion. And then a few years ago, we had another reunion after 40-something years, and there was about 60 people or so that showed up for the reunion. So it was nice. It's nice to keep in touch, and it's nice to have that camaraderie, that sense of friendship after so many years, you know? And they're all over. Some are in Massachusetts, some are in Florida, and yet every evening you can still touch base with them. And that's one thing I like about Facebook. Most technology I don't like, but <laughs> Facebook, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a sister, June. She's a sibling. She's very involved in art. She has always been an artist since she went to Parsons College of Art and Design. And um, she had put a studio of art on the top floor of her house in Staten Island. She subsequently sold the house in Staten Island. She sold her mother-in-law's house in Park Slope on Fifth Street. And they moved uh, to uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And now she has like a gallery of art going up there. And currently she's working on metal sculpture, like welding and different types of sculpture. Uh, mostly her medium used to be like uh, oil or watercolor, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where did you go to school after St. Ephraim's? Well, after St. Ephraim's, I went to Our Lady Perpetual Help High School. That was four years. And... Uh, um, now all PH is shut down. It was a girls Catholic high school. It's no longer in service. Um, and then from there, I went to the four best years of my life, Brooklyn College. I had wonderful, wonderful time at Brooklyn College. It was excellent. I got to meet people from every walk, every background of life. And I felt there was such a great diversity there. And I felt comfortable there. The people were very accepting, very, uh, I still have keep in touch with my friends too from Brooklyn College. So I've kept friends from high school, college, and from elementary school, so I've been blessed. And then I went to graduate school at Brooklyn College also, and um, 
one of the things I did was take a CU uh, NY, the, uh, the 30 above after my master's. We went to England. We were brought to London, North Polytechnic, and we went to, to view students uh, learning about science lab in England. So Brooklyn College has a lot of amazing things that they can do with with their uh, students and they offer a lot of courses and and wonderful things i think people should take advantage of the cuny and the suny definitely because they are remarkable and you get a lot of bang for your buck i mean i think i went through uh maybe two or three thousand dollars for undergraduate and for graduate school i think it was like maybe um 2500 or something like that uh, it was dirt cheap and it was the best education, honest to God. And I ended up uh, using it because I went through um, Brooklyn College. I graduated with my Bachelor of Science and then I graduated with my Master of Science and I um, became a special education teacher. My background is neuropsychological brain dysfunctions, working with children that have learning disabilities. And I've been teaching now for almost 38 years. Um, 36 years at my current school, which is McKinley IS-259 on 7301 Fort Hamilton Parkway, run by Janice Geary, an excellent principal. I've served under 14 principals, so I know what I'm talking about, but uh, she's a lovely lady and a wonderful school. What uh, drew you to teaching? Uh, I think, ironically, it can be said that the abuse that we suffered in the Catholic schools um, at a young age, third grade and fourth grade, um, was hideous and I felt that no child should ever be uh, abused verbally, physically, mentally, or emotionally. And unfortunately that did happen in um, my, I would say second grade, third grade, fourth grade. And I felt that I could do a better job and I wanted to be a teacher so I can make sure that the children under my care would learn and not be abused. And that's, I know it sounds terrible, but that's the reality of it. You know, and what um, drew you to teaching in the area where you grew up? Well, actually, I started off. I worked at uh, PS one hundred two on Seventy Second and Ridge Boulevard. They gave me a class that was called TMR, which was Trainably Mentally Retarded. In those days, they don't use that word anymore. They say mentally challenged or educably challenged. Um, and I was working under Miss Mary Connors, who was the principal there, and she said to me, you know, I want you to go back, Sheila, to Brooklyn College, and I want you to get your master's in learning disability and become a resource room teacher. And I said, huh, what's that? <laughs> and lo and behold, I did exactly what she told me to do. And then after that, I had worked also in 104, which was Dr. Moore's school then, 92nd and 5th. I worked over at um, 192 on 47th Street and 18th Avenue. I didn't like that school. That was my first year teaching. Uh, I could tell you a million stories about the kids in my class. It was really sad. And eventually, I, after I graduated, I went down to 100 Attorney Street, and I met my professor from Brooklyn College. Her name was Elaine Thompson. She, she took my um, thesis, my master's thesis from me, and she marked it. And I walked into the room, and she said, Sheila, what are you doing here? I said, Professor Thompson, what are you doing here? She says, I'm giving out jobs. I said, ooh, I'm first online. So we went to a book, and they opened up the book, and they were shuffling through the book. And uh, she said, where do you live? And I said, I live, you know, at that time I lived in my aunt's house on 535 74th Street. And I told her, and she was, oh, that's District what? And I said, oh, it's called District 20, I knew. And she was, let me see. She said, no, nah, no, nah, I only have one school in District 20. You don't want it. 
And I said to her, well, what is it? And she said, nah, you don't want it. It's junior high school. And you know those junior high school kids, forget about it. You don't want them. No way. So I said, well, could you look it up? And we pulled out the red book. At that time, there was a red handbook that had all the schools listed in it. She flipped through, and she looked up the number, and she said, something called a William, Mc I said, McKinley? And she said, yeah. And I, she goes, do you know it? I said, oh, yes, I'll take it. And boom, I got my papers. I went to see my principal. He says, I'm going to get rid of you. You're not staying. I'm not having you sent to me. I picked my own people. You are not picked by me. I said, trust me, you'll grow and love me. I said, don't worry about it. I'll work really hard. I'll be the best teacher ever. He goes, I'm going to be watching you morning, noon, and night. I said, okay, no problem. Watch me all you want. I said, you could put a webcam in the room. I said, I'm going to be busy working. You can do whatever you want. Lo and behold, he danced with me at my wedding. Oh. So I, needless to say, Mr. Dunangel, I did stay. And uh, needless to say, I'm still there 36 years later. Okay? So, you know, you can't, you know, you can't say. I mean, he couldn't kick me out. I mean, I worked hard and he grew to like me. So, grudgingly so. But, yes, he did like me. In the end, he danced with me at my wedding. So, I think that's cool. <laughs> he was a good man, but very strict. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> very strict. But you could survive that. You could survive anything. You know, I think all the principals that came behind him were like a piece of cake compared to him. <laughs> yeah. What have been some of your biggest challenges teaching at McKinley? Biggest challenges? I think, I think the one thing that I would have to say is the change in the discipline code. I believe when I first started working, it was much stricter. We had a very clear code of discipline, and children knew exactly what would happen to them if this they did this the repercussion was this. If they did that, the repercussion was that. But today, for whatever reason, I think it has watered down quite a bit. And the teacher themselves, even though we have two deans of discipline, very nice ladies, they work hard, but I don't feel the children can make that connection. Like they, they're they are feeling that there is no follow through or no repercussions if they go ahead and do something that's wrong. If they break the rules, then, you know, they feel like it's more nebulous. It's not as clear cut as it was years ago. Like, you know, two latenesses equals one cut, two cuts equals one referral. One referral means a trip to the dean's office. You know, everything was very delineated. Today, you can't even write a child up. You have to show um, 55 ways that you have tried to contact and take care of this child and coddle this child before you can put on paper anything that the child has done in terms of misbehavior. And I think that's wrong. I really do. I, I'm opposed to that. I think children need to know that when you do this, there are clear and concise consequences for your actions right away. Don't wait 10 months down the road and tell them, oh, this is your, now this is your consequence. Because it doesn't, there's no connection there, you know? And I think that's a problem. I think discipline today is, is a major problem because people don't want to um, follow through on it or they tend to glide over some of the things that the child does and the child feels that, oh, I got away with this and this, let me try this. And it gets further down the road instead of nipping it in the bud. Mm -hmm. So discipline is definitely a key area. And are there any moments in your career there that you've been particularly proud of? Well, I would say yes. Um, I, I've been very happy to work in the school, and I've had some achievements uh, with certain students. They have uh, achieved quite a bit. I had a girl a few years ago who came in and was in like dire straits, and she was having a lot of problems, a lot of issues. And um, 
it turned out that her father came to see me and he was a lieutenant in the police force in Staten Island. And um, he, he got custody of her. He went to court and applied for custody of her. He got custody of her. And he said to me, I've never had a girl and I've never had like an 11 or 12 year old girl before. What do I do with her? So I went through a whole thing list with him. You should do this and this and this and this and so on, telling him about it. And eventually she ended up uh, making Arista the honor society. She got an 85 and above in all her subject areas. She did really, really well. And she went on to a good high school in Staten Island. And I was very proud of her achievements. You know, she had come in in, in a very sad fashion. You know, her mother was really unable to take care of her. And uh, to working together with the dad, we were able to get her up on her feet and get her going. And she was a, a phenom. She loved school. She loved reading. She was really a wonderful child. She blossomed. She really blossomed. So she was certainly uh, a definite uh, positive uh, factor uh, in my career. And there was other students along the way too that have had emotional issues and things like that and constantly pushing them along. I was able years later to meet them and have them tell me, you know, Hey, you know, I turned out pretty decent and um, I did good. And uh, I remember you and I remember your class and I was happy, you know, to be a part of it. So that's that I think in and of itself is a plus, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, there are many highlights, you know, and many children through the years that you service that you'll probably never know about. And hopefully all of them, you wish the best for all of them and you try your hardest for all of them. And many of them are successful. Many of them do turn out to be good, productive citizens. And I think that's the blessing of being a teacher. Mm -hmm. What is it about this particular area and neighborhood which you've spent most of your life in that is unique? What is unique about Bay Ridge? Well, I think that I think that for a long period of time when I was growing up, parents and grandparents still lived in this neighborhood. And there was that home connection that even if you travel far away, you could always come home to Bay Ridge. And that was the beauty of it. And when you came home, you felt like when you walked up or down the street, you would bump into neighbors and family members and friends that you hadn't seen in a while. And even though the years have passed, you still made that connection. So I think that that's one of the positives of Bay Ridge. And I think that Bay Ridge um, has been a wonderful community in so many different ways. I think they're very loving, very giving. I think during 9-11, that showed itself very powerfully around here. I, I know that we lost um, one of our students, um, Eddie Graffangino. He was a firefighter in 9-11. He went to McKinley. He was one of our students. He died. And we have a charity every year. We give out awards. His father comes to the school and gives out awards. Uh, another firefighter that died through St. Ephraim's, he was a student at St. Ephraim's, was Dennis O'Berg. And also, two awards and things have been made in his name. Um, uh, one of our deans passed away some years ago. Her name was Dorothy Guerrero. She was a phenomenal person. I mean, really loving, kind, and caring, and did a lot for children. And we have an award that's given out every year in, in memory of her. And also, um, for many years, we gave out an award, the George Renz Award. He was a young teacher in our school. He died suddenly, aged, I think it was 27 or 28. He um, had an asthma attack, and he didn't have his asthma pump with him, and he passed away uh, on his way to the hospital. But he was the band leader in our school, and he taught band, and he was a phenomenal young man. And there's an oil painting still hanging in the school that shows you know, uh, his dedication to the students and to uh, the, the art of music, you know. And his name was George Renz, a f wonderful young man. He died way before his time, you know. He's a very nice young man. But there's a lot of things that connect 
people in Bay Ridge and a lot of things that are special about people in Bay Ridge. And certainly I love living here and I've lived here the bulk of my life and I hope to go on doing so. And a lot of my classmates feel the same way as I do. My husband doesn't. He wants to go back to uh, Connecticut where he's born and raised, but I still say Brooklyn is the best, you know, and I'm happy to be here in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen? Oh, wow. I would say probably stores mostly, um, you know, along Fort Hamilton Parkway, the stores have changed a lot. Um, 86th Street, the same thing too. Uh, basically people dying, moving away. You know, you see that over the course of time. You don't see as many uh, familiar faces as you once did. You know, when you go places, you don't bump into people like you did at one time. So things change and people do move away after their parents, you know, pass on. Sometimes they sell the house and they move away. So you don't see as many of your colleagues and friends in Bay Ridge as you once saw. So that's the change I would say. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you told us a little bit about going back to Ireland and searching uh -huh. for some family roots. Yes. What drove you to that? Oh, well, you know, it's sad. I wish I had spoken more to my mom and dad when they were alive, but a lot of times people don't want to reveal their personal, you know, feelings and things, you know. But um, unfortunately, my father died when I was 15. I did go back to Ireland when I was 18, 21, 22. And I did go back to Ireland recently with my husband. My husband had only been to Ireland once before when he was three years old. So he really didn't remember Ireland very much. And now as an adult, we went back in 2012. And it was wonderful to go back, you know, to see the sites. We went to Kerry. Uh, we went to the Ring of Kerry. We went to Dingle Bay. Uh, we traveled through Sligo. I got to see Clunacool, where my mother was from. We went to um, uh, Drumkiernan, County Leitrim, where my dad was from. We went to St. Bridget's Church. We saw where my grandparents are buried. That's interesting because my grandmother died like August 26, 1952, and my grandfather, her husband, died August 26, 1959, seven years apart the same day. And that happened also with my great-grandparents, John uh, Barton and, Mir and Bridget Cullen. Uh, they died within 24 hours of each other, and they were buried together on the same day. Um, one had died of a diabetic coma, and then when she found out her husband had died, she said, I can't live without him. She had a massive heart attack. She died, and they both were buried together on the same day. So there is an interconnection. I find it dates are very interesting. One of my great-great-grandmothers was baptized a hundred years to the day I was born. So I found that interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. So there is a connection I always feel with dates. Like the 17th is a strong date in our family. Mm -hmm. My my grandfather, great-grandfather died on February 17th. My sister had a son born on February 17th. My um, father was born August 17th. Uh, my friend's mother passed away, um, well, let's see, no, uh, her, she also was born on August 17th. There's, there's a lot of interesting things. Like if you start looking at dates, you see patterns repeat themselves in families. Mm -hmm. So I, I find that kind of interesting. My mother's August 17th. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Wow, see? Mm -hmm. Great date. My dad was born. <laughs> my friend Susan's mo mother was born then. And my, hu my husband's the 17th, but he's April 17th. And wow. my mother was April 7th. So they liked each other. They always got along good. I said, <laughs> oh, those Aries, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Gemini. My sister's a Gemini, but we don't see eye to eye at all. We're two different two different people completely. 
And I think we're about coming to the end of our time. Well, it's been fun. Thank yeah. you for listening. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about? Uh, at the moment, no. I guess not. <laughs> I think I've talked to you deaf, dumb, and blind. But I, pre- I appreciate the ability to do this, and I think it is wonderful. And I'm very happy to be here. We're so Thank grateful you. you came. Thank you.